Good morning, Sunrise. Uh, my name is Connor, and I'm filling in for Dan this morning. Um, it is a beautiful August Sunday morning. Uh, I just want to thank, uh, thank you all for being here, if you're here in person, and uh, welcome you as well if you're watching online. Uh, it's a beautiful day. Let's start it uh, with some worship. Um, stand, if you will, and sing with us.
Thank you. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you, Lord. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done for us, Lord, and for what you've promised to us. We pray that you would just make your presence known to us today, Lord. Please prepare us for um, the message that we will hear. I pray that you will um, bless Pastor Dennis and his message for us, Lord. I pray that you would just speak through him um, and that we would be ready to receive that, God. We love you so much, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, first of all, welcome everyone, uh, and then welcome especially to those of you who are joining us for the first time, whether that is here or online. Uh, we're glad you could make it. Um, if you are new, you can scan the QR code here or uh, around. Uh, that'll bring you to our website where you can uh, fill out the new guest form. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and send you a gift. There's also a gift in the back if you're here in person. We have a few announcements this week. First of all, our beach day has been moved to Friday, August 18 at 6 p.m. at Kirk Park in West Olive, which you'll notice is the same time as the sunrise meets, uh, sunrise does sunset event. So that's one big beach event now instead of two smaller events. Again, Friday, August 18 at 6 p.m. The women's prayer group is meeting outside uh, on Tuesdays at 11 a.m., you should bring a chair to that so you can sit while you pray. Pub Theology is this week at 6.30 p.m. in the Matices backyard, which is me. That's my backyard, Noah Matice. Um, if you have any questions about that, reach out to me. Uh, talk to me this morning. Um, if you are not on the email list and you would like to be, let me know. Um, and if you ever have any ideas for a topic, anything pressing that is uh, burning in your heart, let me know. I'd love to uh, see if we can work that in. This Wednesday is our pizza and game night. Uh, we had a ton of fun last time. Uh, that was in the, the spring. Uh, we'll provide the pizza. You provide the games. Um, you sign up on our website by Monday. Yes, the end of Monday so that we can have an accurate headcount for pizza. But if you don't sign up in time, come anyway. Um, and fish and loaves and lots of pizza will be had. Um, please come. It's going to be a great time. We also have Sunrise Students Parent Meeting is 4.30 p.m. next week Sunday here in this room. Um, if you have any questions about that, you can ask Corey. If you'd like to partner with us financially here at Sunrise, uh, there are a few ways that you can give. Uh, we have our website or the, the QR code again. Um, you can drop something off in the boxes that we have in the back, or you can send us a check. Any of those ways will work. Uh, we're going to break now for three minutes. And y'all can shake hands and get coffee and have a good time. Continuing on our series in Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 today. And we're going to be discussing something that we have actually discussed several times before. This idea of cleanness and uncleanness in the kingdom. What does it truly mean for someone to be holy? Uh, and then how does one find themselves in that sort of a holy space? We've, we've discussed this before, as I said, but we've never kind of taken it from this, this angle. Uh, we've almost always approached it from, well, a, a New Testament perspective. We've, we've talked in the past about the time that Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. You remember that? Where he, he takes 
the, the, they'd run out of, out of wine and the celebration was about to be forestalled and this was going to bring great shame upon this new young couple and their families and what Jesus does is he has the servants fill the uh, like 20 to 40 gallon you know, uh, stone jars that are used for ceremonial washing and the thing that are used to keep old religious people happy, Jesus turns into a mechanism to keep the party going, my man. And by so doing, renders those stone pots ineffective to do what they were originally supposed to do. But in so doing, what Jesus shows, recommunicates, is that he's much more concerned about this young couple than he is about the religious rituals that people are participating in. We've, we've talked about it in, in, in terms of Luke chapter 7, where, where we saw Jesus is, is there and he's teaching, and a woman comes into the house of, of the Pharisee that Jesus is teaching in, and she, in great repentance and love, begins to kneel and to wash his feet with her tears and to dry them with his hair. And the religious folks around Jesus look at that woman, and they're not astounded by her faith. They're not... They're not taken aback by the fact that she is so grace-filled because she has been forgiven so much that she is doing for Jesus, humbling herself in a way to do for Jesus what the host should have done for him in the first place. They, they don't look at her and stand in awe of her faith. They look at her and they issue scorn for her and for Jesus by thinking if he only knew the kind of woman that was touching him. We talked about this idea of cleanness and uncleanness from, from Luke chapter 8, where, where Jesus is walking through the crowd, where a man, a synagogue leader by the name of Jairus, has come to Jesus, and he said, my little daughter is lying. She's lying, and she's on the brink of death. Will you come? And Jesus says, yes. And while he's on his way, a woman who has been suffering with, the, the Scripture says, a uh, uh, an issue of blood or a bleeding disorder. This woman has essentially had a menstrual disorder for 12 years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And she touches him, just the hem of his garment, just the, probably the little tassel that's on the prayer shawl that Jesus wears. She touches him and immediately she's made whole. Or, or the time in Matthew chapter 8 where, where the leper encounters Jesus and Jesus asked him a simple question are do you want to be clean and the leper says that he does and he articulates and confesses faith that Jesus is able if he is willing well what kind of faith is that Lord I know you can if you're willing, you can. And Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. Go and show yourselves to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. And what, what, what we've seen is that cleanness and uncleanness in the kingdom economy of Jesus doesn't work the way it did, or does it? The way it did in the Old Testament, right? Because we, we, we've sort of been raised with this idea that that. In the old economy, it's the unclean that defiles the clean. But in the kingdom economy, it's the clean that invades the unclean. You see, the amazing thing about all of these encounters was that in every instance, according to the economy of the law, 
Jesus should have been unclean, but it wasn't the fall that invaded the Messiah. It was the Messiah that incarnated and pushed back the fall everywhere he went and with everything he did. Over the next two weeks, we're going to actually test that little theory. Is it always or was it always true? That the unclean invaded the clean? Or has it always been the intention of God that the people of God would be a people who would walk in the footsteps that Messiah walked and that we would be a people who would push back against the evidence and the manifestations of sin, death, and the fall in our lives. Let's look at Haggai chapter two. And um, I apologize in advance for those of you who don't like history, but we, we, gotta, we gotta do a little bit of work to set some things up. So Amy, I apologize. I'll wake you up when I get to the good stuff. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, um, and, and we, we start out uh, with this. And it says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, and this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the folds of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, No. And when Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. And on the 24th month, yeah, and on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. All right, so we've read this passage, we've looked, and now we've cycled back and we're in this first this first little verse. So, so Haggai does something in these verses, and he sets up sort of two illustrations to beg a question. And he asks the priest, and the priest answer correctly in both instances. If this happens, does it make a neutral thing clean? It's the first instance. If someone is carrying consecrated meat, meat that has been made holy, been made holy because it has been brought as a sacrifice, it has been blessed by the priest, it has been consecrated unto God. And if a person, not even a priest, but a common person who was allowed after bringing a sacrifice to take a portion of this back and within one or two days eat this meat with their family, is this holy piece of meat carried in a garment? If the garment then touches a common or neutral thing, does that thing become holy? And the answer is no. Well, but then if someone touches a dead body or does something that first person, first person contact defiles that person, when they go and touch something else, a neutral thing, is the neutral thing then made unclean? And the answer then is yes. To understand what Haggai is actually trying to say or what he's trying to get at, we have to sort of cycle back and we have to look at and be reminded of the fact that this is actually the third prophecy that Haggai is giving over about a four-month period. Isn't that funny? Like Haggai's ministry, some total of his ministry as we have it written down in the scriptures was just under well, about three and a half months long. 
This is the third, but the first prophecy um, tells us a little something that's, that's kind of important. The first prophecy of Haggai, if we back up about three and a half months, in Haggai 1.1, it comes through the prophet to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judea, and to Joshua, who was the high priest. The prophecy comes through from the Lord through Haggai to the leaders of Israel. And the date of the prophecy is very clearly marked out. It says on the first day of the sixth month. And, and according to the Hebrew calendar, that's about now. It's somewhere in the middle of, of August. And it's important because it's about two weeks prior to the Feast of Trumpets. Now, remember, up until this point, there's been about a two-decade lull in the people actually arriving back in Judah and doing what they're supposed to have been doing. They've been there. They've been so preoccupied by building their fancy houses that they haven't been doing the thing that they were supposed to do. They haven't been rebuilding the temple, and they haven't even, at this point, rebuilt the altar so that they can offer sacrifices. But the word of the Lord comes to Haggai two weeks before the, the community is supposed to be participating in the Feast of Trumpets. This is important. This is important because the Feast of Trumpets is a signal or it's a call to repentance to the people. It's a time that is to be treated holy. It's a time for the people to come and to bring food offerings within the celebration and to cease from work as a declaration of their dependence upon God. These offerings that are made are offerings that you're allowed to take home after they've been offered and eat a portion of them within a certain amount of days on the calendar. It's at this point, this point of the year where a people who have come and they've been so preoccupied with their own fancy houses that Haggai comes prior to this feast of the trumpets and calls the people back to the work that they're supposed to. Here's the call to action. The call to action is, is very simple. Is he, he calls them to a place. There we go. Man, my clicker's giving me, me trouble. The Israelites, friends, they had been neglecting the work of rebuilding the temple and spent the last two decades focused on building their own fancy houses. And the call is to come back to the thing that God has established for them to be doing. This is actually chronicled what happens here uh, in Ezra. If, if we look at, at Ezra, um, uh, ch- chapter 3, I think. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And when the seventh month came, this is the beginning of the the time of the Feast of Trumpets, and the Israelites had settled their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem, and then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the sons of Sheatel, and his associates began to build the altar of the Lord of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. The first prophecy that was given, the first call to repentance that was given was met 
with obedience from the people. The second prophecy takes place about seven weeks after the first. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, on the 24th day of the seventh month, sometime toward the middle of October. Um, 14 days after the Day of Atonement, the day that sacrifices are made for the cleansing of sin for the entire community, nine days after the Feast of Tabernacles that commemorates uh, the period of wilderness wandering and God dwelling with his people. After this month of festival, or these several weeks of months and festivals, the word of the Lord comes again to Haggai, and there is a second call to action. At the end of verse 9, God through Haggai issues a call to the Israelites to embrace his present peace, which is greater than the nation's glorious past. We talked about this last week. How the second prophecy comes and, and, and Haggai is calling the people and he's essentially telling them, listen, it's not just about being busy with your hands. It's about the inclination of your heart. It's not about resting on the laurels of who your fathers and grandfathers were. It's about being the people that God is calling you to be in this moment and in this space. And during the white space between verses 9 and, and verse 10 that we read just a little bit earlier, there is the period of about another month. And what is indicated by this white space is that unlike the leaders of Israel who obeyed and did what they were called to do in constructing the altar so that the people could once again participate in repentance and the forgiveness of, of sin and seek atonement and commemorate God's faithfulness is that there was not a change in the heart of the people after the second call, hence the third prophecy that comes. Now in the middle of December, we see that Haggai speaks for the third and final time in recorded scripture. And as we saw earlier, this is, is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone, right, someone, not necessarily a priest, but likely someone who brought the sacrifice themselves, a, a, a common person, an Israelite, a part of the tribe, a, a part of the, the community, carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew or some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? And this, this presses in on the question that I would like for us to consider for the next few minutes, folks, is what makes something holy? The meat was consecrated and the meat was holy, but, but, but what then makes something holy? Because the priests answer correctly, as I, I pointed out earlier, they answer, they say, they say no. And this is the correct answer for, for, for several reasons. Um, things were... Um, made holy in the Old Testament by contact with a holy thing. But there was a prescription that, that, that we had to follow. 
You see, only direct contact with a holy thing could make someone holy, right? Direct contact with a priest, direct contact with a sacrifice, direct contact in, in, in all kinds of ways. The priest laying their hands on something, the priest declaring a leper clean that had been previously unclean. Um, priest uh, having someone shown themselves before them after they had a, 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 a bodily discharge or something like that. The priest had to make a declaration. There had to be some kind of direct contact, but it wasn't just about direct contact. You could have direct contact in the Old Testament with a holy thing, and it could also cost you your life. Think about Uzzah, who, right, the, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and it's wobbling along, and it's like going to fall, and he reaches out his hand to touch it, and... You do not play fast and loose with the holy. That's why there were so many rules and regulations about who could enter the holy place and who could enter the holy of holies. Uh, the point I think here that's, that, that's important that, that Haggai is making is that secondary contact does not make someone or something holy. See, just because the meat was ho- holy and was in the sleeve of someone carrying it, just because the sleeve bumped up against something, that didn't make that thing that it had been in contact with holy. And this is, for me, why it makes it so interesting, Jesus' encounter with the woman in Luke 8, because she didn't have direct contact with him. She just touched the tassel of his prayer shawl, and yet... She experienced healing. You see, this isn't the normal way of of things. Verse 13. Uh, we, we, we continue on and we see that in verse 13, uh, then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body, right? So direct contact, making someone uh, uh, defiled or unclean or, or uh, unholy, uh, does it become defiled? If, if someone, okay, let me, if a person defiled by the contact with a dead body touches one of these things, and I'm presuming that he means, right, the stew, the wine, the olive oil, the, the common thing, does it become defiled? And the priest answer, yes. Here, here's where things are different, right? Secondary contact with an unclean thing then could make something unclean. There are two ways to think about this, right? There's, there's someone that's, that's been defiled and they demand purification rights, right? You touch a corpse, you have a skin disease, there's a bodily discharge. All of these things demanded the performance of a purification rite. There had to be some kind of encounter, personal, with the holy, with a priest, making of sacrifices, all those kinds of things. But there were other kinds of defilements that didn't demand that kind of jumping through those kinds of hoops, according to the, to the Hebrew law. These secondary contaminations, a person who was touched by a person who had defiled themselves, a, a person who had touched something that that person had touched, well, all they had to do was to leave camp for the night and to take a bath. And here's the, here's the distinction, right? See, see, direct contact with a holy thing was necessary. But indirect contact with a defiled thing was enough. Hmm. In the Israelite law, 
this idea of defilement was, protect, was perpetuated, friends, until something was done about it. I guess that's what this means. While the holy, while the consecrated took intentional action, the fall continued to rule and reign until somebody put a stop to it. Until someone stood up and acknowledged the fact that something was broken. Again, we go back to Luke 8, Luke 8 and this is, this is why this, this whole encounter is so unbelievable to me, is that at every turn in this encounter, Jesus should have been defiled. You see, it was, it was enough. It was enough for this unclean woman to touch the hem of Jesus' garments to make him unclean, and yet that's not what happened. It wasn't the defilement that invaded the holy. It was the holy that pushed back on the defilement. When Jesus then comes to Jairus after he's encountered this woman and he goes to her dead daughter. Okay, so, so remember this first encounter with, with the woman who is unclean. When she comes up and she touches Jesus, this is kind of that secondary defilement. It's the secondary uncleanness where all Jesus would have had to do at that point is according to the law, he would have had to go out outside the camp for the night and he would have had to have taken a bath and everything would have been okay. But there's a second part to this story where Jesus walks into the room where this little girl, Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, who is now dead, and Jesus touches this dead girl, which was not just a secondary defilement, it was a primary defilement according to the law. The issue was is that Jesus was not bound by death. His job was to come and to overcome death. He would do it for himself down the road, but in this moment, he was doing it for this little girl. And it was not the corpse that brought death to the living. It was the life, the one who brought about life, the one who spoke life into existence, the one who holds our life in his hands that brought her back from the dead. She didn't make him unclean. He gave her the resurrection and the life. So what in the world does Haggai chapter 2 have to teach us? A lot. These verses have to teach us. They have to have a lot to teach us, folks. I think, I think the first thing that they teach us is... is it's something that we've probably heard and we probably know, but, but here's, here's the thing, and this, this is the hard truth. Holiness is an acquired second hand. It doesn't matter who your mom or your dad is. It doesn't matter what other people have done. See, I think that part of the point that Haggai was, was trying to make and that God was trying to make to the people was... Well, was that in, in this instance is that holiness and cleanliness, right? This idea of being consecrated, th- this is not a new idea. It's, it's, it's been this way from the beginning, is that it takes a direct encounter with the holy, with the divine, with the one who in his person is holy. See, folks, that's the thing. God is intrinsically other and intrinsically holy according to his being. It is an ontological reality. We are brought into a holy space through his grace and through an encounter with him. Holiness for us doesn't happen secondhand. What does it mean to be holy? It means that you've had an encounter with God. It means that you've come to Jesus. 
it means that the same one who the woman touched but was not defiled, the same one who reached out his hand and brought life and resurrection to the dead corpse, that one longs to know and to engage and to touch us. It's a first-hand experience. The second thing I think this passage teaches us that's, that's, that, that's a true reality that we have to grapple with is that holiness isn't a state into which we drift, but defilement often is. One of my favorite scenes and one of my favorite lines uh, is in one of the early Harry Potter movies where um, they've got the, the mandrakes and they're, they're growing these, these you know, little, little child root plant things and, and, um, and these these little mandrake plants, their, their screams can, can basically cause someone to die. They're so shrill. And they, they have these earmuffs on to protect themselves. And when they're trying to repot the, the mandrakes, Neville Longbottom passes out when the, when the mandrake squeals. And, and Professor Sprout says, mm, Longbottom's not been minding his earmuffs. My friends, I feel, I feel that we have way too many people in the church that aren't minding their spiritual formation, that aren't paying enough attention to who God has called them to be, that we drift along and we have all these priorities, the priorities of, 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 of our career or the priorities of our family or the priorities of, of comfort or of ease or whatever it might be. We have, we have the priorities of, 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 of all different kinds of things, but, but holiness isn't a situation into which we drift. We have to take responsibility for these things. It takes intention to be the man or the woman God has called us to be intention and probably not intention in the way that we often think about it or we were often taught about it intention to every day wake up and to choose to love people that are unlovable in our and our eyes and in our minds the intention to to lay down our own self-serving desires at times and to do the work that God is calling us to do Holiness is an acquired second hand. Holiness is not a state into which we drift, but defilement often is. And holiness, and the last thing here is that holiness is, all, is something that requires both hand, or both heart and hand. Yeah, Greg, if you could just put that up there, that would be really good for me. There we go. As people who seek to be holy, as people who seek to be consecrated unto the Lord, um, this is a reminder to me, and I hope it's a reminder to you, is that you and I don't get to do everything we want to do when we want to do it just the way we want to do it. I feel like here's the thing. We live in a world that basically says, you know, do whatever you want to do. Do what makes you happy. The way of Jesus isn't that way. I don't get to do everything I want to do because I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my gracious Savior. 
See, true holiness, my friends, is being set apart for the service of others. And sometimes the service of others demands sacrifice. It's funny. Ben's out right now, probably chasing Sophia somewhere. Um, Ben, my buddy Ben Jordan, long hair. Jesus and a lumberjack had a baby. That's Ben. Um, I thought maybe he could hear me. He's standing right out the window. We were texting just the other day. I'm like, how you doing? He's like, oh, oh, man. Sophia's in that stage where she's just, she doesn't want to sleep in her bed. She doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to do that, right? If you're a parent, you've been there. Right? Is that true holiness, my friends, this, this idea of heart and hand, it wasn't enough that the people were actually rebuilding the temple, but they were doing it with their hands, but they weren't doing it with, with their, their heart. And here's the thing. If your heart's not in it, the works of your hands can't be truly holy. And if your hands aren't doing it, then I wonder about the intention of the heart. True wholeness, my friends, is not measured by my, my activity, for sure. But by a heart that longs to want, to want to do the right thing. Did you catch that? I'm not always going to do the right thing. And I'm not always going to want to do the right thing. But if at the deepest part of my being... I can come to the place and be transformed enough by the work of the Holy Spirit to where I want to want to do the right thing. That's an indication that God is working. We'll not always have pure motives, but the desire to have pure motives is virtuous as well. What does it mean? So what does it mean for us to be holy? Well, the first thing is, friends, you, you have to have had an encounter with Jesus. And if you haven't had an encounter with Jesus, maybe we just need to stop working so hard. And we need to settle in and we need to come face to face with him. Holiness is, is not something that's passively manifested, right? Yes, it's given to us. Yes, we are imparted with the righteousness of Christ. Yes, all of those things. But if we are to live the life of Christ, my friends, it takes surrender on our part. Sometimes I think surrender is like this, this passive thing, but, but following Jesus is active surrender every day, laying down all of who we are to him. And holiness is something that is an issue of the heart being changed that makes its way out of our hands. As the worship team comes um, to get our last song, I want to thank everyone uh, for your prayers uh, over the last uh, week or so. It has been, it's been a tough go. Uh, spent most of last week, uh, right after I left service yesterday, uh, last week, um, I went and I was checking my emails and I'd received an email from Emily's family. And they had asked me to do the funeral. And uh, as we prepared last week and as we walked through this season, as we, we took steps and, and um, headed towards yesterday morning when we had the funeral, um, it's just hard and it's exhausting to walk uh, in, yeah, yeah to, walk, to walk that path. And, 
as I was preparing this message, I, I, I thought a lot about my relationship with, with my, my dear friend and some, and some of the conversations that, that we, had, we had had over the years and, and how that she had to unlearn what it meant to be holy and to be righteous in the eyes of the church people that she had been raised around and she had to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. My friends, I guess that's maybe the, the thing today. Is that there's going, to be, there's going to be a time when every one of us are going to stand before the Lord and, and we're going to give an account for the things that, that we've done. And I'm, I'm, I'm honest when I say, to me, one of the most unnerving pieces or passages of Scripture is the passage where Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. And that passage, the thing that's, that's most unnerving to me is that the goats don't know their goats and the sheep don't know their sheep. Because the goats have done all kinds of stuff. All kinds of really, really powerful religious stuff. But they never knew Jesus. And they were never transformed by his love. So yesterday, as I looked out at this crowd, I looked out at this eclectic, crazy, grieving crowd. I was reminded what the power of one holy young woman can do. And that holiness was demonstrated not through some of the normal avenues that we would count as holy activity and behavior. But it was demonstrated by the one that counted is that she loved people like Jesus did. And she actively pointed him in their direction. So, as we go from here, mind your spiritual life. You will not drift. You will not glide into the person God is calling you to be. Don't count on your heritage. God doesn't have grandkids. And know, and know that God sees your heart. He sees your intentions and he sees your motives. And he's much more concerned that you want to want to please him than he does as to whether or not you're 100% successful 100% of the time. So Father, I pray for these friends. I pray that we would take the, the words of Haggai the prophet seriously, Lord, that we would continue to, to grow from them and in them. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us again?
those you go this week receiving and pressing in to the holiness that God has for each and every one of us hear these words from the scriptures to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to only God our Savior be glory majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore may you go in his peace amen